theyeshiva.net. Okay, the following story. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I, t- I told you I'll share with you a story. The source where I got it from was Rabbi Benjamin Bleich, who's a longtime teacher, professor, and Yeshiva Sabin Yitzchakal Khanan in Yeshiva University, and a rabbi for many years, I think, in Canarsie or Brooklyn. So uh, I don't know the original source of the story, but uh, I got it from him. It happened near Dvinsk. Dvinsk is a city today in Latvia. And Dvinsk had two great Rabbonim. It's interesting, this city had two of the greatest uh, scholars of the time. You had the Rav of the Chassidim was the Ragachavagon in Dvinsk, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, and the Rav of the Ashkenazim was the Ersameach, Rabbi Nomeir Simcha Hakoyen of Dvinsk, known as the Meshachachma. Rabbi Simcha passed away in the 1920s. I think around 1926, Pevov, 27. And the passed away a decade later in the 1930s. <clears throat> so uh, there was basically a Jew who was uh, penniless, mamish penniless, uh, very pious. Yeah? <laughs> he was very, very impoverished, very pious, a God-fearing person. And he was uh, trying to marry off his daughter. So he was in need of a very large sum of money. Now, he, throughout his whole life, he put his trust in Hashem, but he understood you have to make your ishtadlus, you have to do naturally what you have to do in order to be able to um, support yourself, especially you have to make a wedding. Almost by chance, but he didn't see it as chance. He saw it as... Uh, by providence, somebody bumps into him, and uh, they're walking in the street. He, by mistake, he bumps into him. Uh, the person apologizes, and as he's apologizing, you know, they start a little conversation. The man tells him that he's sell, selling lottery tickets. They had a lot. They had a lottery, and he's selling tickets. So he said, maybe. The reason why we bumped into each other was for a purpose. The cost of a ticket is, is nothing. It's, it's insignificant. It's minor. And if he wins, the possible gain would solve all of this fine Jew's problems. No. So the last money, the last ruble he had, he spent it. He bought the ticket. He went home. And then he went to Davin for a miracle that he wins. Not far away from the house of this Jew, there was another Jew who, uh, let's put it nicely, uh, he was the exact opposite of the first Jew. He was what, what you would call in Yiddish the Shtotganev. You know, you know what a Shtotganev is? They still have it. <laughs> a Shtotganev, he was scrupulous, immoral, unethical. He was a businessman, but uh, completely without a conscience. And he regularly swindled others. He was known, he was a swindler, he was a swindler. He was also in debt for different reasons, because of how many loans he took and how many business deals he made. So he also decided to buy a lottery ticket. Maybe he would win and he would overcome his financial challenges. There's something called mikvanayas, you know, mikvanayas. It's the news that travels... uh, 
in small Jewish communities. Uh, before it happens, yeah. So there was talk in town that this, this, this God-fearing Jew, the first one, bought a lottery ticket. So the Ganev, a Ganev he was, but he was a Jewish Ganev. So he had an idea. He said, since God would probably want to give the lottery to the first Jew more than to him, because the first man is a Yerushalayim. So he thought to himself, he's going to slip into the house of the other Jew, <laughs> steal his ticket, <laughs> exchange the tickets, because if anybody's going to win, it'll probably be him. This is what the Ghanav thought. <laughs> so he'll have, he'll have more chances. It's like the Gemara says in Brachas, Ganva pumachtarte rachmana karye. A Ganav, before he goes into your basement, he davens to Hashem. He says, please help me. It's the paradox of the thief, you know. He's, he's turning to God, and he even makes resolutions. He'll give 50% for tzedakah, you know, with a 60% for tzedakah. So this is what he's thinking. This man is a Yerei Shemayim. God will help him, not me. So let me go get the ticket. <laughs> so what happens? He does it, decides to substitute the ticket and get the one of the of the righteous Jew, of the pious Jew. Nope, you could probably guess what happened. <laughs> the day of the girl came. And the pious Jew was actually stunned to learn that the Rebbeinu Shalom answered his prayers. His ticket, his ticket, let's put it this way, the ticket he thought was his, was the winning one, and the Ganev was devastated. <laughs> he was devastated. <laughs> he, by his own, by his own work, literally, jeopardized himself from a gewaldike, gewaldike uh, sum of money. If he would have only hold on to his ticket, it was the winning number. He gave it away, and that was the ticket that won. And the ticket that he had, which was from the other Jew, actually lost. Okay, so you would think that he would tell himself, it's not so good to steal always. Now the next part of the story is hard to believe. He took the first Jew to a Dintaira. <laughs> he took the Jew who was to a Dintaira. And he said, I'm a Ganav. I stole his ticket. I gave him my ticket. But it's really my ticket. <laughs> I stole it. It's my ticket. I get the money. He takes the guy to Dintaira. He admitted that he was a Ganav. And it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a substituted. Ah, very good. Yeah, <laughs> Ah, maybe he had a simon. I don't know. He says he took a picture on his iPhone or DNA. You sure? Okay. Who was the Rav? The Rav was Reb Meir Simcha. Reb Meir Simcha, the Meshachachma, the Ersameach. <clears throat> and he listens to the two sides. He says, it's his ticket. And I can't say pilpul he had. Gneva is not koina, you need yiyush. I can't say. He did a whole pilpul. 
he prepared himself that it's still his. It's his ticket taken to somebody else's house, but it says the fact that he did one thing wrong doesn't make a second wrong, and therefore he owns the money. So the Meir Simcha listened to the two sides. I have a ticket, I won. I didn't know any story. This is my ticket, I won. He didn't even know what happened. You know. So the Arsameyach said that uh, the Ganav is wrong. <laughs> and the pious man gets the money. It's not fear. It's my ticket. So he said, your mistake is not that you got, that you stole. That's, uh, that was, of course, part of your mistake. The whole perspective that you have is wrong. Because you're foolish enough to believe that it was the ticket which had the mazel rather than the person. It was the ticket that somehow had luck. He says, God wanted the person to win, not the numbers to win. He wanted the person to win, not the numbers. That's what he said. So your whole idea it becomes irrelevant because you're attributing victory to the numbers. Victory has nothing to do with the numbers. Victory has to do with the person, not with the numbers. A person says, if I would have only been smart enough to choose these numbers, then this would happen. You're missing the entire point. He was awarded victory because it was in his hands. <laughs> in other words, let's say you wouldn't have stolen. The other numbers would have won. And therefore it has nothing to do with anything. Victory has nothing to do with the numbers. It has to do with the person. And that's why he was awarded. And again, the he took the money from him. That's the Maisa. But now I'll tell you another experience I had. I had myself. That I think brings out a lot of, I don't know, it brings out a certain point. Many years ago for Pesach, I was a, I was a bocha, I wasn't married. It was in 1990, um, I think 1998, Tovshin Chas, I think. I was invited to go to Pesach, for Pesach to Japan, from all places to Japan, community called Kobe, Kobe, Japan. Sometime earlier there was a big earthquake there, and Kobe has a Jewish community, a beautiful shul, they didn't have any rabbi or spiritual leadership. So they were looking for rabbinical students to come and uh, and help them do Pesach there, run Sdarim. And... So I got a call. I got a call from Rabbi Moshe Katlarski, who runs uh, in Lubavitch. He sends out, you know, organizes shluchim going out to places. So he asked me if I want to go there for Pesach. No, what's there to do in Brooklyn for Pesach? Japan seems like the right place to be for Pesach. So I went. I went with a friend of mine. We had to bring everything. Matzahs, of course, and, and food. We came a few days earlier to be prepared. They told us they're planning to have, I don't know, a few Jews at the Seder, 20 Jews, 30 Jews. With the kasha, the kitchens, prepare for everything. Mamish, prepare for a Seder. 
prepare food, cook food. We brought a lot of food, obviously, fruits, vegetables we could buy there. And in the meantime, we were there, so we spread the word that there's going to be a Seder. We spread it. And at the Seder, 200 people, 200 Jews showed up. And we were there a whole Pesach. We finished, so it was a Shabbos after Pesach. We still weren't flying home, so we went to Tokyo. Tokyo is a bigger community. And in Tokyo, we davened their Shabbos. The shul gave us a place to stay. And again, we had our own food, doggy bags with a little tuna, sardines, some bulkalach, a Shabbos in Tokyo. We davened Shachus and shul. I finished davening. After Musaf, somebody comes over and says, do you mind giving a shir in Pekayavis after Shachrus? First Shabbos after Pesach, give a shir. Fine. So after Musaf, I go into the, they had like a study room, like a classroom, very beautiful room. And a lot of people show up, I don't know, like 20, 30 people show up to the class. And I teach the first chapter of Pekayavis. In the middle of the chapter, we're learning a mission, and a woman asks a question. And a very interesting question, intelligent question. And I take a look and I see that she's a Japanese woman, you know, with uh, all of the features of uh, a Japanese woman with the accent, the look. And it was a little strange how much I answered and she asked another question like she knew a lot. When I finished the shir, she comes over to me. Good job, thank you. She says, maybe you want to join us for lunch, she asks me. So I wanted to be polite and I said, you know, we have uh, our own standards of what we eat, what we don't eat, and it's kosher, and it's just a little complicated. So we'll just uh, we'll just eat here in our little home. We have our little food. She says, what, what, what? You need chol of Yisrael? You need pas Yisrael? You need bishul Yisrael? You need mahadrim and mahadrim? And I have everything. <laughs> I have everything. I milk. I milk the cows myself. So I'm thinking to myself, you milk the cows yourself, but you need a Jew to milk the cows, or at least supervise the milking of the cows. So I said, I thank you so much, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But I think it'll just be, it'll just be much easier here, and you know, don't take it. She says, what are you doubting? <laughs> I'm Jewish, I'm a full Jew, I keep Chal of Yisrael. Okay, so she convinced me. So I said, fine, we'll go to your house. So I go with my friend to her house. We come into her house. It's a place, uh, the whole house was, uh, the dining room was mamash, barely chayev b'mezuzah. It was a tiny, tiny little house. Two kids with payas. <laughs> Japanese kids with payalach, long payalach, you know. Get kreisel to payas. How do you call it? Uh, in, in English, get kreisel, curly payas, with big, Black velvet kapalach, big, big bevel, I was come out. The husband has a beard and payas and a yamaka. He's obviously not Jap- Japanese. We come in, make kiddush. Everything was homemade, home baked. Delicious meal. So after kiddush and washing, I'm saying, what's this mystery here? <laughs> Who are you people? So they start telling the story. He grew up in New York, a secular family. And uh, he went far, far away. <laughs> He went to Japan. He became a teacher there. He's there for many years. Completely isolated and detached from anything connected to Judaism. He met a Japanese girl. He took a liking to her. And he married her. After the marriage, sometime, 
she asked him, where do you come from? Who are you? He says, I'm Jewish. He says, what's Judaism? He says, I don't know. It's some religion. She says, don't you want to know where you come from? Who are you? Where, what? I'm not interested. I'm interested. Why wear it? So she starts reading up on Judaism with him. And she gets very intrigued and inspired. And after all, she says, this is the place to be. I want to convert. There was a reform rabbi who would come to visit. So they did a reform conversion. After a year, she's telling this to me, I learned more and I realized that this conversion is very problematic. Next year, a conservative rabbi came. So I did a second conversion, a conservative conversion. After another year, I realized, no, no, this is not good. Not good. So they traveled to California to do an orthodox conversion and then went back. Once this happened, so she became a full Jew. He got involved in Yiddishkeit. They had these children. So she says, we homeschool them. We milk our own cows. He's a teacher. She does her thing. She turns to me. She says, you could test my children. One finished Masechta Rosh Hashanah and one finished Masechta Chagige. <laughs> so I tested them. I tested them at the table. Anyway, it was so fascinating. I sat there all day in this tiny, tiny little place. It was tiny physically, but it was very expensive. There was a fascinating people. Just listening to the story and asking questions. Literally, we sat a whole day. I remember it was a long, you know, it was spring, so it was a longer Shabbos. We sat till Mitzvah Shabbos, and it was an incredible experience. And uh, and I said goodbye to them, to the him and to the children and to her, of course. And we left. I think the next day or two days later, we had a flight over the Atlantic, so we shouldn't cross the international date line. <laughs> it took 30, 40 hours, and we got back to New York. I still remember there was no kosher food for the way back. So, huh? Because of Sviri, yeah, Shvuas, Sviri. If you remember the Shvuas Shia two years ago with the international date line. So uh, I still remember there was no kosher food on the way back. That I remember. That's why I'm so slim. And uh, and those are those. I jotted, I jotted down notes for myself of the experience, because it was a very moving experience. I, years passed. Years passed, and life moves on. My father, Allah Shalom, had a Yiddish newspaper. It's called the Algemeiner Journal, that he founded in 1972, when the Day Morning Journal, which was a daily Yiddish, died, closed down one day. The Yiddish newspapers were very powerful, but then they died one after another, because the population was shrinking, and the new generation was reading English you know, the larger Yiddish-speaking world. It was a very big world, but uh, already the 60s and the 70s, it became weaker and weaker. So he had his weekly newspaper that he published and he edited for many years. And uh, he had a writer, his name was Dr. Hillel Zeidman. Dr. Hillel Zeidman was one of these big Yiddishist writers, yet from Warsaw. One of, it was a unique genre of, of Yiddishist. And uh, he passed away in the late 90s. He had a column, was called The Sedra from the Vach. It was like immortal, one of these immortal columns, he used to write on the Sedrin Yiddish, page 5. And there was another person who, uh, so afterwards, my, it was empty, so my father asked me if I would uh, write a, a weekly column in Yiddish on the Parsha. I said, fine. So I used to write every week a column in Yiddish on the Parsha that I would prepare, and it was always based on the Parsha, an idea, whatever, I developed it. I remember it was one week, Closing day in newspapers, you know, deadlines are very critical. (laughs) 
So my father calls me, it was Wednesday morning, and he had to go to press, and he said, I didn't get uh, an article from you, I have this big hole on page 5. I said, uh, it was Shavuos, it was right after Shavuos, I didn't have time to write. He said, you think within an hour you could, you could, uh, I said, I can't write an article in an hour, it takes many hours to write. It could take a day, two days, three days in editing, and it's not, not easy, writing is, uh, is an art. He says, what am I supposed to do? Maybe you could find something, something. I said, let me look, maybe I have something. So I'm looking at the computer, and then something pops in. Maybe that story from Japan. It's never published. Let me, that story from Japan. And I look, I see, I wrote up, I wrote up a very nice story, but I have to write an article in the Parsha. It's not on Parsha, it's about, you know, milking cows in Tokyo. Like, what's the connection? <laughs> then I think, you know, it won't be on the Parsha, but it says the Parsha from the book. So then I realized... This is how, you know, rabbis prepare sermons. I thought to myself, I started like this. I said, it's the Shabbos after Shavuos. We just read Rus. So I'm still under the impression of Rus. And as I'm thinking about Rus, which we just read on Shavuos, I want to tell you a story. <laughs> that was my connection. And I said, years ago, I went to the Okio. I already had the whole story. And then I finished and I wrote that... Uh, when you read Rus, it's one of the most moving moments when her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, go back home, go back to your parents, you're a non-Jewish, you don't have to, you don't have to join with me, a Jewish impoverished old woman, there's no future with me, you know, Naomi was impoverished and she was a widow and she lost her sons and she had nothing. And Arpa left and Rus told her mother-in-law, Naomi, she said, Ba'asher telchi eilech, ba'asher talini Olin, where you go, I go. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Ameich ami, elekayich elekai. Your people is my people, your God is my God. Bashar tamusi amus, where you die, I will die. Visham ek cover, and there I will be buried. And Rus follows her mother-in-law, and of course she becomes the, the mother, the grandmother, the mother of Ivid, the mother, father of Yishai, the father of David, and the mother of Jewish, Jewish royalty. And I said, when you read these stories, they seem like stories of thousands of years ago. But in Japan, I had the privilege of meeting another Rus who left everything and declared, Amech, Ami, Elekayech, Elekai, where you go, I go, where you dwell, I dwell. And uh, it's a source of inspiration for me and I think for all of us. Shai. I had an article, I just had to do a beginning and end, I submitted it, I made a connection with Shavuos, Parsha, Rus, good. I sent it, it was printed. That Shabbos, I still remember, my parents hosted a Sheva Brachas for a relative. So I went to the Sheva Brachas. A fellow, I just remember, comes over to my father, Oliver Shalom, and he says, I didn't know that you're so into nepotism. Everything is nepotism, nepotism, nepotism. What happened to journalistic integrity? Nepotism means when you, everything, it's just about family. Like uh, there's a position, it's all family. You don't look about anything else. In other words, you don't give the position to somebody who deserves it. You give it. He tells my father, did you see how ridiculous your son's are in front of me? Your son's article was this week? It says the Parsha of the week. We read it in order to get an insight on the Parsha. Instead, he's telling me about his trips to Japan. What in the world is the parsha? So he made this weird connection with Rus that was superimposed. That 
article belonged in the garbage. It didn't belong to be printed in this column. That's not journalism. He started to thus. Fake news, yeah. Very good. Before, before there was fake news. So my father listened to him and said, uh, he had a real Russian accent, it's a very interesting article. I don't know what your problem is. He says, yeah, you're biased. It's your son. But you know, if it would have been anybody else, you would have looked at it and said, this is the Parsha of the Week. This has nothing with the Parsha of the Week. And then he looks at me and says, I expect from you much better. Shine. He finished. He went on and on. As we say, life moves on. <laughs> right? Okay. Jews have opinions. But I knew that he was right. <laughs> this guy, I knew that he was on to something. Because I knew how the article was concocted. <laughs> it didn't start with the Parsha. It started because I had nothing. So I took out an old story. And I made a connection. So I knew that he had a point. I didn't tell him. But I knew he had a point. I went on. Life went on. Years, years pass. I don't know how many years. Many years pass. A decade, maybe a little more. And I'm invited to give a lecture series in Melbourne, Australia. So, I'm already married. I have a child. I'm traveling with my family. I don't know, 10 years later, 15 years later. And we stop in LA. From New York, you go to LA. And then you take a flight to Melbourne. In LA, we had a stopover, I think, for a day or two. We stayed at a friend in Agura Hills in the valley. And I asked, when Shachrus is? Tell me Shachrus is 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay, so I got up, I went to Shul, 6 o'clock in the morning. I dove in Shachrus. There's a rabbi in Shul, his name is Rabbi Sapachinsky. I finish Shachrus, I finish, I put away my talisman full, and I take it, I go out, it's, I don't know, around 7, a little before 7. Before I leave, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, yeah, I was always meaning to tell you a story. Already years ago, I, I, it slipped my mind. I, you, I owe you a telephone call. You're here. So let me tell you a story. This is what he tells me. That uh, morning around the quarter to seven, or seven o'clock in the morning after Shachas, this is the story that he tells me. <laughs> and you'll understand why I'm telling you this story today. He says, I have a minhag. By lunch, I have a lot of guests. Friday night, lunch, I have a lot, a lot of guests. It's a classic uh, Chabad house in, in Agura Hills in California. A lot of Jews, secular Jews, it's a huge community. They come for Shabbos. And you know, most of the work of Kirov happens during Shabbos meals because of the ambiance, the atmosphere, and of course the good food. The fish, the chalent, the songs, the zmiris, whatever. I have a lot of guests always. And I need to say something. So what I try to usually do is, I'm a subscriber to your father's newspaper. <laughs> And I like your column. And hopefully it comes Friday. I read it. And at one of the meals, I usually give over your vart because it's a, it's a beautiful vart. Sometimes the problem is that the newspaper doesn't come on Friday and then I'm stuck. I have to find my own vart, and it's not good. But I always pray that it should come on Friday and I have my vart. He says, some years ago, a family moved here from Japan, he tells me. Some years ago. And uh, I invite them for lunch. They're sitting. Their kids went to play or they were somewhere else for Shabbos, my friends. So it was me, my wife, and the husband and the wife sitting at the table. The wife turns to me and says, I gave everything away for Judaism. 
my family, my background, everything. You would think we move to a Jewish community, we would be accepted with grace. Instead, my kids are bullied. They're made fun because, you know, it could be in schools. I don't have to tell you how kids are bullied. They're made fun because, uh, because of their eyes and their features. In shul sometimes, the shul she went to, like people look at me as though I'm this strange foreigner. And doesn't it say 36 times in Torah, it's not easy to come from such a foreign culture and everybody sees the differences. And I'm so turned off by how God's people have not welcomed us and embraced us. In Japan, it was easier to be connected to Yiddishkeit because it was like us and God. And here, it's like people have so many issues and egos and what works for them and doesn't work for them. And they say, she really spoke her heart. And he tells me, she was pushed crying. This is what my children need. This is what we came to. I thought we're coming to an environment where there'll be so much love and acceptance and tolerance. and People will be warm and inviting and they'll appreciate us for who we are. And we have exact opposite. And I don't even know if there's one person who can appreciate us. And it seems like this whole religion, somehow you lost something in the process. It became full of toxicity and politics and tribalism and selfishness and racism. And there's so much bigotry. And it's everything against of what I learned in Taira. Rabbi Sapachinsky tells me, she's mamish crying, her heart is torn. And I'm listening, I'm listening. <laughs> what can I do? We finish the fish. And that's usually when I say my Dvar Torah. But the newspaper didn't come on Friday. And I want to share something. And I want to share something inspiring and moving. So I decide I'm going to go to the mailbox. And see, maybe the mazel, <laughs> it came today. <laughs> maybe the paper came today. So I excuse myself after the fish. And I go out. And the paper is there. The Algemeine Journal is there. So usually I read it before. But I didn't have a chance. So I bring the paper to the table. I say, usually there's a guy here. Yeah, He writes a good essay. And he has good insights. It's in Yiddish. I'm going to read it. And I'm going to translate. He says, okay. I says, I open the newspaper, page five. And I start reading. We're coming from Shavuos. <laughs> we all read Rus, the story of Rus. I want to tell you a story that I experienced in Japan when I went. And I'm reading the story. It's this couple. And I wrote the story in detail. <laughs> the Chalavisol with the kids, with the payas, with the yamaka, with the prikayavis, what the house looked like. I wrote what she, uh, what she uh, served, what she baked. In detail, detail, details. The whole thing. And then at the end, he continues reading about Rus. That Rus left everything. And she said, my people are your people, my God is your God. Where you go, I go. Her mother-in-law said, this is not a wise decision. You come from a nice house. But Ruth said, for truth, I give away everything. And I finished the article, and he says, I'm reading, that don't think that these people don't live in our generation. I had the privilege of seeing a Rus in our times. Rabbi tells me, he says, if you would understand the the Tchiyas HaMesim, the the rejuvenation, the, the hope, the vitality you gave 
to that couple at that moment. He said, just for that, your soul may have come down into the world. He said, they're just the validation. They felt so denigrated. The val- just the validation. They said, where is this printed? He said, ooh, ooh everybody, the, the Jewish world reads this. Yeah, they used to say that the Algemeiner with the New York Times together has three million readers. I don't know if he t- <laughs> The question is what, uh, okay. Okay, that you have to figure out. So she says, she says, why did he write about us now? She asks you, why? He says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why he wrote. She says, but this happened so many years ago. I remember, I, don't, I barely, re- it happened. Who reads this? The whole Jewish world reads this. At least thousands and thousands of Jews read it. It actually had a pretty big readership then. Uh, a lot of Jews read this. Tens of thousands of people are going to see this. Says she started to cry, but this is with different tears, tears of joy. So he turns to me, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, I don't know how you knew that Shabbos. <laughs> what in the world went into your mind? How did you know that Shabbos to write a story? But I just wanted to tell you that this is what happened. And I meant to call you because you deserved it. But it slipped my mind, life went on. I see you now, years later, I'm telling you the story. As he's telling me the story, I had a flashback. To my father calling me and say, I have this missing piece. And I say, I don't have what to do. Forget this. He says, no, no, find something. And I find something. I do this superficial patching. And then I remember Shabbos, this guy screaming nepotism. This is garbage, garbage. And from his perspective, he was right. And then here I heard the other side of the story. And I think... A lot of this has to do with one point, and that is these things you can't plan. If I would have planned it, it would have been limited to my imagination, which is fine, which is nice, that's how much of life happens, but it's a very limited experience. And therefore the results are also filtered and finite and restricted to expectation, plans, limitations, and so forth. The greatest opportunities in life, the greatest gifts in life, happen often in a space that is beyond consciousness. Because over there, the I, the limited I, doesn't mix in to encumber and obstruct the flow. The I becomes a conduit for the deeper I which is unconscious. And then, transformations happen beyond one's imagination. And that's the nekuda of what we're learning. Or at least one of the nekudas, one of the points. That's what this chassid in the, in the Teisef Tempeh is celebrating with shikha. That it's, it's shaloi midateinu. It's beyond my das. No, so it's beyond my das. I forgot, big deal. But as the Balatanya says... The fact that you forgot doesn't mean it's not connected to you. It just means it's rooted in a much, much deeper place in you, which is rooted not in your mamale, but in your soiviv, and not in your soiviv, but in the rots and the rots and the makif, the makif, the pnimiyas And the only way it could come out is not through rotsin. 
like we spoke yesterday, Mioidea, beyond Das. That's the story I wanted to share with you. This I experienced myself, and it was a very profound lesson in life. So what we try to create is meaningful. <laughs> but what we, what we don't know that we try to create is always more meaningful. What we plan, what we expect, what we anticipate, what we create with our imagination is powerful. But it pales in comparison to the power of that which is not filtered through the containers of consciousness. That is rooted not only in Ratzon, but it's rooted in the unconscious Ratzon. Now somebody asked me, you mentioned yesterday, so does this mean that you wanted to forget? (laughs) You chose to forget, right? I just want to say it seems strange when you hear these things, but I don't know if you're aware of this. It's just good to mention. I'm, I'm not telling you that I understand this perfectly, but these are facts. In 1971, I read this, so I once read the paper. There was a scientist, his name Lubin, I forgot the name, Levine, Lubin, and he came out with an experiment that he did claiming that people make choices in their brain before they know that they made those choices. People laughed at him. You make choices before you know that you made those choices. A choice by definition means that I'm choosing it. It was heavily disputed. In 2008, Mamish a few years ago, there was a whole series of experiments that a group of scientists did that basically, quite fascinating. They put people in a room, okay, and they figured out, and they asked them to choose certain things. Like you're going to move your hand to the right or move your hand to the left. You're going to press this or you're going to press this. You're going to take this. And you have to make a decision. And you also have to press a button when you make that decision. I know, right? You can ask me, make a decision in one minute, right? If you want to look here, you want to look there. And I'm going to make a decision. And when the moment I make the decision in my mind, I have to press something. So they identified the moment that the person experienced in his mind the choice, right? I have a choice. I'm going to go dive in this minion or that minion. I'm going to go visit this person. And you decide and you make a choice and then you do it. But they also had something connected to the brain to be able to see the different regions of the brain lighting up based on the different choices. And what did they see? They see that the choices, they knew the choice before the person knew the choice. In other words, the choices that we are making very often have been made already unconsciously by our brain. We're not conscious that we made those choices. We become aware of it much later. Now, this is pretty, pretty uh, strange stuff. Huh? How much later? In this case? Around 10 seconds, I think. I mean, I saw it a long time ago. Yeah. So it's something, you know, you can, they, they did experiment after experiment after experiment. What it, what it demonstrates is, I'm not, I, I, I have to restudy the details. It's interesting stuff. What it demonstrates is that choices can happen on many levels. <laughs> a choice can happen on a conscious level and a choice can also happen on an unconscious level. And even a choice that becomes a choice on a conscious level, 
may have happened earlier and I was not conscious of it. Rasha says, Yeah. Perhaps. It could be on some level. It could be. What does that mean? We'll soon see about Masli, what Masli means. It could be, yeah, it could be. What this means is, I'm just bringing this out as a point, and this is, this is, this has, no, this is pure scientific stuff. It has nothing to do with, uh, apparently spiritual stuff. But I think what it demonstrates is, is it possible so often in life that there are things, me? I never chose this. It's not so simple. Which part of you didn't choose it? Maybe your deepest, deepest, deepest self chose it because this is who you are. This is your path. This is what you're connected to. And this is where your ultimate mission will be fulfilled. And that's why it can't even be filtered through your consciousness because that would only ruin it. (laughs) Just I wanted to add that. So according to this, what's the shikha? The shikha is not, I just forgot. <laughs> the shikha is, I was actually given a gift. Another thing I wanted to say is, I was looking up about shikha, and I saw that uh, the Mizrahi, the Belion Mizrahi, and the, talking about the Ursameach, and the Ursameach, both say a chiddush and shikha. The world learns, I forget the bundle, I go home. I come back the next morning. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Okay, sorry. Goes to the poor man. And as the puzzle says, I can't go back to retrieve it. Once I forgot, I forgot. It now belongs to the poor man. So the Balatanya says, this is the mitzvah. It can only happen through absent-mindedness. Because if I planned to forget, it would have never happened. But when does the mitzvah actually happen? When you give it to the poor man. Or you tell the poor man, take it. The Mizrahi and the Mashiachach will say, that's not pshat. You know when it goes over to the poor man? Right when you forget. <laughs> In other words, the whole mitzvah happens when you're absent-minded of the mitzvah happening. It's not pshat that the mitzvah happens after you forgot and you come back, now you have to give it. No! It already belongs to the poor man when you forgot. The Torah just says, don't take it away from him. You're not allowed to take it from the field. In other words, it's as though it was put in his house, in his silo, in his garage, and he was already kind, even though it's in my field. The shikha creates a new chalois of bailus. He dies before he finds out, he already has that mitzvah. Yeah, yeah. That answers the question. If he dies before, he already did the mitzvah. He already did the mitzvah. Because the mitzvah is not him giving it afterwards. It goes automatically, it becomes under, it goes into the domain legally of the poor man or the poor men, because we don't yet know who's going to be zoichet, ah? So it's not a heksha mitzvah. It's not that the mitzvah can only be fulfilled through forgetting, which is also a powerful point. You can't fulfill it. But rather, the whole mitzvah is fulfilled when you're unaware of it. When you become aware of it, it's just like, okay, nice. <laughs> and now the turn is like, of l'kachto. And it's, this is a whole new, it's a, it's a new depth in the Indian. The whole mitzvah itself is happening when you don't know. But why? Because this mitzvah can only happen in a place that's beyond us. This mitzvah can only happen. Gavaldi Kavart. 
the and he brings a great proof. What's the proof? On the Pasuk, it says in Sifri, in Dvarim, Sifri says, what do you learn from this, the Sifri says? That if somebody is walking and they lose money, they lose money. And they're upset. <laughs> the wallet falls out, it had a hundred dollar bill. And a poor man takes it and uses it. So the Sifri says, you are Mekaya Mitzvah Staka. <laughs> Where do we learn this from? We learn it from Shikha. You were Makaya Mitzvah stuck. I, I wasn't interested. It was unconscious. Certainly if I wanted to give stuck, I was Makaya Mitzvah But here I didn't want to give stuck. <laughs> I'm actually upset that I lost it. The visa doesn't matter. You lost it and it went to the poor man. That's stuck. I wasn't conscious. So it wasn't conscious. What's the matter? You say two things. doesn't need to come on the mikveh and stuck. Because the stuck and the only got it. And mikveh... Yeah. So what's the lie? No, so over there, not kavana means that there's no, uh, you don't need, you know, the, the lishma is not so negeya. I know that I'm going to the mikveh. <laughs> Hopefully. An unconscious person who goes to the mikveh, we know the results. I mean, it's not so good to be under the water, yeah. But the devote is, you don't, it's not negeya the lishma. In other words, lama. Ah, so the Mizrahi says, What's the raya from the Sifri from Shikha? Gaval de Kavart. By Shikha, I find out tomorrow that I forgot it. That's why it's Sadaka. Because I wanted the poor man to get it. Because I want to do Shikha. Here, I don't want you to get my wallet. What's the raya? So he says, from here you could see that what's Pshat Shikha? That it goes to the poor man when there was Shikha. There's already a din of Kenyan and therefore a kiyum of Sadaka. Azar, you learn, when are you Mekayim Shikha? Tomorrow, when you realize, and you're like, okay, I'm not taking it. He says, no, then there wouldn't be a proof that if you lose your money and somebody picks it up, it's Tadaka. You understand? Huh? It's, it's a pretty good raya. So from here you learn that what? When are you Mekayim Shikha? When you're still in a state of forgetfulness. You already did the mitzvah. Ah, here's a good proof. That tzedakah doesn't always need my conscious awareness. Bemela, when it comes to regular tzedakah, regular tzedakah is not shikha, regular tzedakah I give. But from shikha you learn that even if I drop the money and you find it, it's already a kiyam of tzedakah. Because if you were tight shikha, that the mitzvah is only later, then the, the sifri would be a wrong, would be a wrong comparison. It's a tired of art. It gives a whole new depth in the in in in, in the Indian of Shikha. The Gemara says, for example, in Rosh Hashanah, that if somebody says, uh, "I'm giving this seller for tzedakah al menas sheyich yebni," I want she wants his child to have a recovery, or uh, he wants elam haba. So the Gemara says, "Harei zet tzadik gomer." He's a tzadik gomer. Over there, the pshat is shaloy l'shma. In other words. I know that I'm doing it. I want to do it. But I have ulterior motives. The Gemara says, it's fine. I don't care. I don't care your ulterior motives. Give tzedakah reza tzadik gomer. The question is, what does it mean tzadik gomer? Like you're a, you're a complete tzadik for doing that. The Vilna Gong says that the Gemara said tzadik gimel. Hareza tzedakah gemura. <laughs> and the printer didn't figure it out, so he made tzadik gomer. He says, why would you be a tzadik gomer? It's a good thing. We become, he says, it's a tzadik gimel. It's a good tzedakah, tzedakah gemura. There's a chiddush of art from the Liske, Rebbe Reb, Reb Herschel the Liske, and Ach Pri Tvua. It says, Ah, huh? He was the Rebbe of Rabshaya Kistir. Yeah, yeah. Rabshaya was, was, was a Talmud of his. 
Reb Hirshla Liske from Lisk. It's, it's in Hungary. And he has a sefer called Ach Pritvua. So he says, he says, uh, he says, uh, it's a deep insight. He says, Tzadig Gomer is, is literally, he's a Tzadig Gomer. He said, he comes to a person and he gives him tzedakah. He says, the hardest thing in tzedakah is, it's, it's hard to take money from people. It's not easy. There's an element of shame. You know, the good fundraisers are those who manage to get rid of the shame. <laughs> you hear, no, 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 no. I once asked a big fundraiser, how do you do it? And he says, every no just means I'm getting closer to the yes. That's fine. <laughs> he says, they have statistics. This is what he told me. One in 20 say yes. 19 say no. He says, every no just means I'm getting to the 20. It's fine. No. I, I actually like the no, because it's just, it's the stepping stone. The, statistically, I'm getting closer to the yes. No, if you have that perspective, you're a good fundraiser. So this element of shame is very difficult. So somebody gives a seller to somebody from, he gives a thousand dollars to a poor man. The guy's feeling very uncomfortable. So the Gemara says, he says, It's not those words. What he's telling the person is, no, 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 no. You're doing me the favor. You're doing me the favor. I need something. By giving you, you're giving and I'm taking. In other words, you're giving tzedakah in a way where you make the person feel that you are the recipient and he is the giver. You're giving me a gift. <laughs> That's the way to do it. That's the part. You understand? You make him feel, I'm not giving you and you're the you're the nebach and I'm the big philanthropist with the plaques all over the place. You gave me the opportunity. But this is all you're giving consciously with different incentives. The chiddush here is, I lose the money. And it's still a mitzvah of tzedakah. We learn this from shikha. But it's not like shikha. Because shikha, the whole mitzvah is only through forgetfulness. Tzedakah, the whole mitzvah is not through forgetting. If it happened unconsciously, it's still a mitzvah. Shikha, the mitzvah happens unconsciously. So that's why the Balatanya says that this mitzvah is rooted, kevayachal, in a deeper place in Hashem's ratzen. Not in the ratzen that is revealed and articulated in the world of consciousness. It's the ratzen that is completely infinite and transcendent in the root of Hashem himself and the way it translates in a person, every mitzvah I fulfill with ratzon. I want to put on tefillin. I want to give tzedakah. I want to learn Torah. I want to daven. I want to do a favor to a person. I want to. I want to educate my child. I want to be there for somebody. I want to. Ratzon, soivev. I want to. But then... There's that mitzvah that's rooted in Hashem's ratzoin, that is rooted in His essence. So how does it translate in me? Not I want. <laughs> the moment is I want, it's already not that mitzvah. It wants me. Or it's the I, the deep, 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 deepest I that wants it, and therefore it doesn't come out in the place of das. And that's why the Father, the Maisa B'chazadech, celebrated this more, more than anything uh, more than anything else in life. So, what's the what's the takeaway from this? A lot of takeaways. But one of the big takeaways is that uh, that you know, it, there's always in life that which catches us by surprise. <laughs> 
it's like it wasn't part of the it wasn't part of the plan it wasn't part of the trajectory it wasn't part of the the anticipation it wasn't part of the vision many of us when that happens we curse our fate we become despondent we feel like it all ended you know we had these great plans what the balatanya is teaching us here is that it's so often that it's in that place where you will find yourself. It's in that place where you will encounter your deepest self. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a lottery ticket. I got the right numbers. That's what the Ersameich was saying. It's not a lottery ticket. By us, a goyrul is not a lottery. I had mazel and I got the right numbers. No, no, no. It's your shorish hanashama. It's connected was connected to you. The two goats were not random. And sometimes you'll see two children in a family, two boys in a class. They go very different ways in life. One ends up in Kaidash HaKadoshim. One ends up in the Azazel. We naturally say, oh, he was abused, <laughs> probably. He wasn't abused. He had a good mother. He had a horrible mother. Uh, he had a great community. He had a crazy community. His father's a Meshuggah. His father's a normal guy. Sometimes that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that's absolutely the case. But the Mishnah says that the two goats of Yom Kippur were identical. Bemara, Bekoima, or Bedamim. Bemara means they look the same. Bekoima means they had the same height. Bedamim means the same value. If we want to be a little homiletical, we can say they look the same. They have the same countenance. They have the same height. They were raised to the same heights. And Dhammim, the same blood you put into this child, you put into that child. Dhammim as blood. Huh? As family. As family. Dhammim, yeah. Blood and money. Same money, same blood. It's the same. This goat is in Kaidah Shekadoshim with the Aran. They're sprinkling his blood. Achas Lamayla Veshevalamata. Everybody screams, Achas! Achas Achas! Yeah. And the other goat is Lazazel, becomes broken Lazazel. And we look at it and we often want to blame. Sometimes there's blame and accountability. But what the Torah is teaching us is it's a goyro. A goyro means that some souls really have different journeys. And you have to be able to respect that in a very deep place. Different souls have different journeys. The one who understood this best was Yosef HaTzadik. You would think Yosef his whole life should have said, I was so stupid for listening to my father. My father said, go check on your brothers. I should have said, Tati, no, they hate me. Pikuach nefesh is doiche kibudov, sorry. And if I would have done that, I would have stayed home and I would have had a normal life and I would have been a normal kid and everything would have been different. I went to my brothers and what happens? I become a slave and 22 years later, I meet my father as the prime minister of Egypt dressed as an Egyptian, right? Yosef could have done that very, very easily, and it would make sense. I was 17, I was dumb, I listened to my father, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> That's this lesson of life. Somebody once told this to me, huh? Which 17 hours listen to his father? Right. Complete, completely not the right, yeah? Yeah. And, and, and Yosef could say, my next mistake was, my next mistake was, that I was moral in the house of Potiphar. 
Again, no good deed goes unpunished. My next mistake was that I trusted the butler and tried to help him. And again, he ignored me. Every good thing I did went punished, basically. Yosef was punished for good things. If he would have been a regular boy (laughs) who just looks out for himself, he would have had a good life. Instead, when he meets his brothers, what does he say? He says those words, You did not sell me. There was a shlichus that was given to me in this world. This is where my soul belongs. Why? I was destined to save the world. It's a different journey. Could have I planned this? Of course I could have stayed home. I could have done this. He recognized that there was something deeper at work. Completely deeper at work. And this is not something you can process and you can prepare for. It's not things you can prepare for. And because you don't prepare for it, it means it comes from your deepest place, which is also why at that moment it creates a greatness that is infinite. It's never the greatness that you anticipate. You become a conduit for miracles when your ego is not present. And when your ego is present, you basically uh, become a... Uh, you could you become a barrier, a barrier. The more the I is gone, the more transformations happen because it's like a channel from from the etzem, from from pnimius akesser. One of the most uh, I don't know if I shared this. Maybe I once shared this. We'll finish with this. One of the most beautiful. It's an extraordinary Torah from the Magad of Mizrich. The interesting thing about this Torah is that it's not found in his writings, in the writings of his Talmidim. It's found in the most unexpected places. And whenever I think about this, I remember the Medrash, which is connected to this. It says in the, in the in Tehillim Peites, Matsasi David Avdi. Frek the Medrash, Heichan Matsasi. <laughs> David got lost. <laughs> you fa- I found him? What do you, I found him. <laughs> God says, I found him? What, what you will, he was lost? So you know what the Medrash says. Heichan Matsasiv. Bizdoim. I found him in Zdoim. Basically, Light and his daughters lived in Zdoim. That's not where Mashiach is supposed to be. <laughs> Mashiach, Davzayin, and Benebrak, in Lakewood, Sharim, yeah? Afshem Monsi, in Borough Park, Afshafila Crown Heights. Yeah, I understand. Ir Hatoyre, Ir Hayira, but uh, in Zdoim? You don't go to Zdoim for Mashiach. Matsasi. Matsasi is unexpected, right? So the point is, greatness you will find in the least expected places. Why? Because the greatest light always comes in the places where there's no conscious uh, experience of it. Because if there would be a conscious experience of it, it wouldn't be that light of redemption. As we spoke about, the light of Mashiach is the light of infinity. It has to come behesachadas. So uh, this Torah, I'm just making this interesting connection. I don't know if it's authentic, but I think it's interesting. There was a man named Shloyma Maimon. Shloyma Maimon was a tragic figure. A Russian Jew, a philosopher. He went to Germany. He was what's called a real apikiris, a real heretic. He became a friend of Moshe Mendelssohn. He got into a depression. He became an alcoholic. Shloyma Maimon, huh? That was his last name. He died from depression, from alcoholism. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. He wrote a book on Meir Nevuchim. And he hated religious jury. He hated, and he hated most chassidim. 
1700s, and he went for a Shabbos to the Magad of Mizrich. <laughs> and he has a diary of it, and it's maybe one of the only diaries we have from a Shabbos by the Magad that's all the way back. And you can trust it, because he had nothing nice to say about them. So when he says something nice, you can trust it, you know? You know, <laughs> he's, he's really objective. And he says there are three titles from the Magad, and one of them is an extraordinary teaching. And the teaching is, the Pasuk says that Elisha, Elisha Hanavi was in a state of melancholy. Today you would call it depression, I don't know if that's the right word, but he was in a state of very, very deep sadness. Two reasons. Elio Hanavi was taken, his Rebbe. And number two, the king, Yehoram, was entrenched in idol worship. And it, it bothered Elisha to the core. And he was very, very angry. The king came to consult with him about something. And he couldn't experience Navua because he was in such a depressed state. And Chazal say that the Shekhinah never dwells in people when they're depressed and sad. You have to be happy. Simcha. So Elisha said, I can't tell you anything because I'm closed, I'm plugged. You know, when you're angry, you're plugged. There's nothing going on. You're just uh, like a zombie. An angry, uh, hot-tempered zombie. So they said to Elisha, what should we do? She said, Kuli Menagen. Bring me a Menagen. Bring me a singer, a musician. Vahoya Kenagen Hamenagen. Vatihi Allah Yad Hashem. Literally it means, Vahoya Kenagen Hamenagen. When the Menagen started to sing, so the hand of God dwelled on him. The Shekhinah came back. So the Magad of Mizrach asked, what's Vayihi? Kenagen Hamenagen. It should have said, Vayihi Kasha Nigen Kasha Hischilanagen Vayihi Kasha, what did I say? Vayihi Kenagen Hamenagen. So the Magid said, it's not enough to sing. The Menagen has to become a Nagen. He has to, Nagen is the noun of Nigen. Menagen is the singer. When the Menagen becomes a Nagen, when he becomes the song, Meaning, as long as I'm singing and I am singing, then the I is a barrier between me and the music. When the menagin becomes the nigin, there's no self-consciousness anymore. The I is not here anymore. I melt into the nigin. I become the nigin itself. You become like the musical instrument or the nigin itself. Then Because you become a conduit. So the, in this sense, consciousness, we celebrate. But on one level, consciousness is also the great barrier of an ultimate experience. That's the uniqueness of the mitzvah of shikha, which is shaloi midatenu. That which is born beyond consciousness is rooted in the deepest places of reality and in my deepest places of reality. And therefore... The fact that the eye doesn't process it and doesn't anticipate it is only because it's much greater. And when that happens, even in a person's own avoida, and the eye gives room to the real eye, to the ultimate eye, then then I become a conduit for God to come through. Which is why I am certain that if I would have planned the article, yeah, it would have been Rabbi Y.Y. making a very nice plan, which is fine. But 
miracles can only happen when the ego is not present, when you become a conduit for the divine. How can the I not be present? Well, this happens in life. It's completely not planned, not anticipated. I'm doing my own thing. I was actually frustrated with myself. (laughs) In other words, I was actually upset at myself because I felt that I failed. And paradoxically, in that process, greatness happens because the ego is out of the way. Okay. So I should have two people states. It's not really a mistake. There's a word from the Radziner, Radziner Rebbe. Okay, this is very sensitive. You have to, all these things, they can be misconstrued. But the Radziner writes, the Radziner Rebbe, uh, it's very, very sensitive. I'm just saying, you have to always be sensitive. He says, the ultimate shuva, a person, it's fine, it's, uh, I'm just answering Ibn Nuchim's question. He says, the ultimate shuva is when you realize that you don't have to do tshuva. But the only way you can come to that is if you do tshuva. <laughs> you understand? The ultimate tshuva, the ultimate, the ultimate closeness to God is when I realize that I don't have to do tshuva. But the only way I could get there is when I do real tshuva. And that's really what the Gemara means in Yumadaf Pevav. Rish Lakish says that ultimate tshuva, tshuva me'ava, zdainais, nasalai kazachis. It's Mamisha Gemara. What does that mean? It means when I do ultimate tshuva, the sin became a mitzvah. So I don't have to do tshuva. <laughs> the sin was a mitzvah. But the only way that can happen is if I do tshuva. Ah? <laughs> yeah. The Badit Shuva says, noise avoin. He lifts up the sin to himself. So it becomes a mitzvah. Noise avoin. It's a mitzvah. He takes the sin, which is dirty, and he lifts it up to himself. So it becomes a mitzvah. Now, what does this mean? Okay, so we're not giving a shear right now at this, on this, but, but, but the point here is, you're saying, celebrate your mistakes. When the mistake brings you where you have to go, it was never a mistake. It was maybe the best thing you ever did. Now, if I'm going to get up this morning and say, okay, so let me go sin, because <laughs> it's really a mitzvah, then, then it's a joke. I'm just, uh, I'm lying to myself. If I care about God, he told me not to sin. A sin is an aveira, a sin is not a mitzvah, right? We always have to understand that. This is where the boundaries get blurred and people make mistakes and sins become holy. Sins are not holy. Sins are unholy. <laughs> They're bad. God said, don't do it, don't do it. When a person made the mistake and sinned and then does real tshuva out of love, Rish Lakish, who was the ultimate bal tshuva, says retroactively, retroactively, your sin becomes... I once heard a word from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, the sor- the Gemara says in Psachim, Davav, we learned it, that the source of Ein Muktam Mu'uche Batayra comes from Pesach Sheni. Because Pesach Sheni is in Bahaloischa. And it happened on Yudalad Nissen. The opening of Bamidbar is Rishchaydish Iyer. So really, Pesach Sheni should have been in the beginning of Bamidbar. And Bamidbar should have been in Bahaloischa. So the Gemara says, Zaysay Meres, Amr of Papa Zaysay Meres, Ein Muktam Amuchab This teaches us that in Torah there's no before and after. So he says, why is Pesach Sheni the source of this principle? So he says, because what's Pesach Sheni? Pesach Sheni means 
I, I lost. I lost an opportunity. I became Tomei and I lost it. And what is God telling you? You didn't lose it. There's a second chance. It says, from here you learn, Ein There's no such a thing in Torah before and after. You say, oi, this happened years ago and I lost the opportunity and now I'm an old man and it's all gone. No, no. Ein the power of tshuva is that it can rewrite the programs of the past. Retroactively, it goes back. So Ein there's no before and after. That's the, that's the Chiddush of Pesach Sheni. That's the Chiddush of tshuva. You redefine, you redefine the mistake. I once saw a story, I don't know if it's true, but the Vart I love, that there was an, I, uh, an IBM top manager who made a terrible strategic error, and he cost the company $10 million in losses. So he came in the next day or the next week to the CEO, the CFO, and he gave his resignation, uh, he resigned, and, and he, he was a good guy. He made a mistake, and he apologized and he didn't demand, you know, no severance pay. He was just happy they would let him go without, you know, suing him and driving him crazy. And he really expressed remorse. And he said, you know, I don't deserve to be here anymore. And, he, and here are my papers and we're done. And his boss looked at him and said, you're crazy? Where are you going? He says, I think I have to resign. He says, Mr. Meshiga, I just spent $10 million on your education. You are not going anywhere, <laughs> right? It takes courage to do that, but it was a wise move because the loyalty that he engendered at that moment, you can't buy for money, you understand? But he was saying something very deep. What he was saying is, you made a mistake. You cost 10 million. It was a mistake that cost us $10 million. If a mistake becomes an education for the future, then it may be the best thing you ever did in your life. We all know there's nothing like mistakes to educate us in life. If it becomes a mistake that brings me to get depressed and give up, then it was a mistake. If I do a sin, and the sin makes me do another sin, another sin, then it was a sin. But if Davera brings me to an education, and awareness, and appreciation, and a deeper relationship with Hashem that comes from the mistake, then... This may have been your greatest moment. Retroactively, it's redefined. So that's, that's a moida de kavart. And what that means then is that, and this is very mystical, and again, I'm saying this is sensitive stuff. It means that when I chose to sin, it was happening on two levels simultaneously. My conscious self that's divorced from God was choosing to sin. My superconscious self, which is one with God, was preparing me for tshuva. Okay? Which is the way the Arizal understands the reconciliation between Yidia and Bechira, or Hashgacha and Bechira. God's providence and knowledge and choice. <laughs> What's happening? Did he know that I'm going to do it? So I had to do it. So there was prayer, there was no prayer. It's one of the big, big questions. One of the ways of understanding it, I don't know if it's called understanding it, but one of the ways of talking about it is that there are actually two parallel universes. In science, they talk about parallel universes. There is the sin from my experience, which is a bad choice. <laughs> bad choice. <laughs> and tomorrow, don't do it. Then you got to do tshuva. 
simultaneously, that sin is happening in a higher place, in a higher world, from a higher perspective. And over there, it's a different experience. What is it? It's a preparation for tshuva. When I do tshuva out of love, the two parallel universes converge. And my choice yesterday, which was a bad choice, joins with God's choice yesterday, which was a good choice. But this is not there to ease the burden of people and, and the guilt to say, oh, oh, I smacked you in the face, I stole your lottery ticket, I backstabbed you, and I insulted you, plus I stole your house, but I was really getting very close to God. The moment that, then it's just, you become a mockery of yourself, and it's, 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 now you're just using uh, spiritual language to justify your crimes. We're not talking about that. So the ultimate tshuva is to realize that you don't have to do tshuva. But that's very, very deep. That's a very deep place. And and think even in terms of your family. And I know here it becomes very sensitive because with God, you know, God is very forgiving and and God is, has good confidence. But, you know, people have made mistakes within their family lives and with their children and and now they grow up and you look back and you're like, I was stupid. I was just dumb and clueless. And yeah, you, you may have been dumb and clueless. Nobody's denying that. And your mother-in-law will certainly agree. And a lot of other people will agree. So there's two ways of looking at it. You look at it and you say, I'm a loser and I, and I, I missed the boat. And on one level, you have all the proofs for it. But there's a much deeper way of looking at it. And the deeper way of looking at it is, that ultimately you're not a victim even to your past. And if right now that negative choice will become a springboard for tremendous awareness and recovery and closeness and and compensation and tshuva to the point that you will actually dedicate your life to a different path. So then that moment of cluelessness may be your deepest moment of awareness on a superconscious level. Okay, I think it's enough for one day, right? I was going to tell you to run on, but instead I have to write for what you just said about... What you said about this, the way you can learn from something, it'd be a story. I went to Columbia Medical School. Famous, famous person who was gone when I was there was dead. A fellow named Lerner. A very famous physician in New York, out of Rio, and I'm recorded. Hey, stately doctor, everybody feared him. He was once making rounds with, there's a famous story in Columbia that they told us all the time. He was making rounds with Febra at the bedside, and he said to the student who was presenting, So, what do you think about this patient? And they're at the bedside. He said, well, I think he has a terrible illness. We're trying, we're trying this, we're trying this, but, but the fact of the matter is, his prognosis is very poor. His chance of recovery is very poor. He has too many medical obstacles. Patients hear me the whole story. Finish the presentation. He walks away from the bedside. He says, see me in my office in half an hour. Student comes to Dr. Love's office. He says, the third year medical student. He says, get your things. Pack your bags. You're going. You're out of school. If you can talk in such a way in front of the patient, tell the patient should hear you say that his prognosis is hopeless. He has no hope. You're going to say that in front of the patient. You don't belong in medical school. Mm. You're in the wrong profession. Goodbye. We invested you in all these years. We have no room in, in Columbia Medical School, someone like you. Students destroyed. Destroyed. 
he heads out. He starts crying. There's nothing more to say. He says, just leave. He's crying. There's nothing more to say. Just leave. He's crying. Comes out to the elevator. He sees a friend. He says, you won't believe what just happened. I, I know what I'm going to do in my life. I, I, I just don't know what happened. Lerb comes out of his office. He says, come back here. Come to my office. The student sits down. He says, I want to be there. He says, I just wanted you to understand what it means to have no hope. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. But when you, when you, you really touch to Ramban's parish, Ramban, when, on Yosef, when he, Ramban says, Yosef could have come back. He, he had every reason to go back. I shall came here like and every reason to go back. He says, but his words, famous words, Hagzerus Emes Vacharitzus Shekin. That's mamish. Yeah. Unbelievable. Nachmanari says the the destiny that God wants is truth, and your creative manipulation is a lie. And the Rabban is not saying you shouldn't plan things. He, he was a doctor, he was a leader, he was an organized thinker, he was not a, an anarchist. But he's saying that there's a deeper journey. Yeah, it's a beautiful Ramban. You know what Charitzus is? Charitzus is diligence and sharfkeit and impressive, impressive, impressive sharfkeit. It's called Charitzus, you know. Yeah. Gewaldik and Vayeshev, he says it. The other Ramban is an Achrim. By the Azaz, also we just said now, where he says, really, so if the whole point was to send this Goral, this carbon to, to Samoil, etc., so what do you need the Goral for? He says the goal is because if the Kohen would just assign him to Azazel, you th- you would think it was humankind that made this designation. Right. You have to have a goal so you show is Hashem who made the decision that seems random right. which one was going to turn out to be Azazel or which one's be yeah. You bring it back to the Kohen so it should make sure you should it should not know it should have any Havamina. It was human humankind that right. made the goal. The goal was absolutely done. Yeah. yeah. Same same point. Sometimes you have to tell a person, you're powerful, but you're not so powerful. Don't take credit for every life that has been ruined. You know, it's not the... <laughs> Jewish mothers, sometimes they feel that they ruined everybody. <laughs> you have power, but you're not God, you know. You don't have so much power. <laughs> People have to go through their own journeys as well. Yeah. Oh, really? That was the, the shul. The, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the big shul, yeah. <laughs> so, Ashavis Aveda is a whole different thing. Yeah, right. Ashavis Aveda is only when you find it and you say, I want to return it. It's the exact opposite than Shikha. But stop, even if we say that shikha happens only later, it's still different than Ashavas Aveda. Because Ashavas Aveda, I could wake up in the morning and say, you know, I really would love to do the mitzvah of Ashavas Aveda. It may happen, it may not happen. But I could want, it's not a guarantee. A person could say, I would love to do the mitzvah of Pidyan Haben. It's not up to me. You have to have a son who's a firstborn, right? And not a koyin. But I could want to, and Hashem may say, okay, I'll give you a son to Pidyan Haben. You understand? A lot of mitzvahs. Yeah? I want to do Shiluah Chakan. I want to do Ashavah Saved. I want to do Pidyan Aben. Yeah? I want to get married. 
but you still need other people's help. The girl got to agree. So there's always an element where I'm not the boss. You know, I want to make a lot of money so I can give a lot of tzedakah. But I need to make a lot of money. That may happen, it may not happen. By shikha, if I want to, it will never happen. So even on the more basic level, it's still very different. If I want to, it's a guarantee that not. I really want to Hashavah Zaveda. You know what? I find a watch. I find a watch. Sure, great. I did Hashavah Zaveda. Is it a guarantee? No. I want to do Pidina Ben. I want to give my son a bris. I want to do a mitzvah. But if I have girls, I can't do that mitzvah. I need other things to help me do a mitzvah. A lot of mitzvahs are not dependent. Most mitzvahs, in fact, right? I need some assistance, which is not dependent. But the Ratzah in here either guarantees it, or at least can be part of it. By shikha, if you want, you can't. <laughs> in other words, it can only happen in a place where there's no, where this is beyond Ratzah. But what we explained today makes it much, much stronger. But I'm saying even without that, it still makes sense. Wasn't this chikha a the story of Ruth? It was, in, it was intentional. You have to remind me. Oh, I could do intentional shikha, but then it's just stucca. That's true, but then it's a different mitzvah. In other words, it's it brought Chazal bring that there were people, farmers, who would do intentional shikha. But it was basically the mitzvah of tzedakah. You understand? It's not the mitzvah of shikha. In other words, if I make believe that I forgot it, so you take it, you think it's shikha, but I knew it was just tzedakah, which is a mitzvah. But that's the mitzvah of tzedakah. The mitzvah of shikha is a unique mitzvah that requires to forget. And if I'm planning to forget, I can't forget. He was sleeping. Right. Right, that's another example. The wine was prepared. In other words, even what they did, which L'chayda was wrong, it was not L'chayda, it was incest. It was... I would never do it without the wine. He had to be drunk. through the clothing for names and programs. Okay. It's real Hashavah Saveda. Here is the unconscious mind. Self. Self-opposed. Here is unconscious. Self-opposed. A lot of Bechira, we're not sure exactly how it happens. In other words, we have free choice. But how that free choice happens is not so simple. A lot of that free choice we may not be so conscious of. Bechira is a very complicated thing. If you would ask today many philosophers or psychologists in the mainstream secular society, they will tell you Bechira is fiction. It's the greatest fiction of humanity. There's nothing anybody ever chooses. It's all an illusion. We're conditioned. So then how they remain sick? <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> no, in other words, it's very easy to say that. There's no choice whatsoever. I'm a product of my genes and my disposition and my weaknesses and my nature and my nurture. That's who I am. And I really had choices. It's chemical reactions. So I'm saying, so, but Yiddish guide believes there is Bechira. So Bechira is much deeper than we imagine. Bechira doesn't always mean 
there's an apple and there's an orange and I chose and I really had free choice. Did I really have free choice? Why did you choose an apple and I chose an orange? The reason is because I like oranges. <laughs> Do I have to hear whether to like oranges? It happens to be my... T- huh? It happens to be I know that I like oranges more than apples. <laughs> vanilla ice cream and chocolate ice cream. I choose vanilla ice cream. You know why? Because I like vanilla ice cream. I don't like chocolate ice cream. My wife likes chocolate ice cream. <laughs> You come into a couch store and you choose this couch, he chooses that couch because this pchira. So that why, there's an answer why that why. If you figure out, it's just we don't know why. So that's what a lot of people argue. So when Yiddishkeit says there's pchira, it needs explanation. It's not so simple to say this pchira. This gives us a lot of insight into this. Because actually pchira means that there are forces in us that choose it may be that the deepest pchira that we have is the pchira we don't know about. That's the real pchira. That's what the scientists tell you. The pchira. Right, but it's... Huh? Because you're really free. Because you're choosing it. In other words, the pchira that I know about may not be pchira. Probably not. I'm just a victim of who I am. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. The pchira that we call pchira is usually not pchira. It's just, it's a domino effect. It's a domino effect. Huh? The, the real pchira may be happening in a place that is beyond consciousness. And that's where pchira is. That's where I choose. But how many people are in touch with that I? Could you ever be in touch with that I? And is it possible that when I'm in touch with it, it's not it anymore? So it means that there are truly... The first taste? There is a truly no two universes. It's one universe. Huh? It just, there yeah. are truly one yeah. universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all happens actually from a place of oneness. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it doesn't... doesn't yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and here on that level means that I'm free just like God. It's the place where my eye and Hashem's eye are so close. Just as He's free, I'm also free. So my choice, my real, real choice, is is really free. But yet, yet we we can we use it for sometimes wrong paths. Also, also, my ultimate choice comes from my relationship with God, and God is uninhibited, and God is not conditioned. He doesn't have a chemical, <laughs> a chemical makeup. And if there's a place in me, the Alter Rebbe writes in the Torah Emmer that Pchira comes from man's deepest relationship with God. Which is why Hashem will not take away Pchira almost ever. Because that is ultimately where man's relationship with Hashem is on the deepest place. In the deepest place. The ability to choose. But because of that, the real choice that I make is a free choice. And it's a choice that God is making. Okay? Which is why the choice is expressed in two ways. Sometimes it's to do the right thing. And sometimes it's to do the wrong thing. But even the choice to do the wrong thing may really be a choice to do the right thing. As a heksha mitzvah. Don't worry, I also don't know what I'm talking about. So don't feel bad. If that's the word that's used, it's probably the right word. (laughs) It's probably the right word.
Okay, you think we have Pchirin now to start learning Gemara and finish this conversation? Rabbi Litzman says we have Pchirin. Okay, so let's believe him. Isaac Bashevis Singer once said... The question is if it would be an Avera. <laughs> Isaac Bashevis Singer once said, We have to believe that we have free choice. We got no choice. <laughs> Git? This is called Jewish cynicism at its best. Isaac Bashevis Singer. Yitzchak Bashevis Singer. You know who he was? <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat controversial. In yeah, in, in cer- many circles, he's very controversial. Listen, his his literature was not the most uh, refined always, and he won the Nobel Prize. I think he was a Nobel laureate for literature, right? He died in the early eighties. My father was a good friend of his, and uh, yeah, he came around. So this is what he once said. We have to believe in free choice. We got no choice. <laughs> but in a way, it's a deep line. In other words, it may be that real choice is from a place where there's no choice. Because you're God. You're God. Can God choose to be ungodly? Yeah, but that's also God. You understand what I'm saying? Can a person choose to be ungodly? If Bechira comes from that place, whatever you're choosing is to be godly. Because that's, that's, the free, that's the freedom. You have the freedom that it shouldn't be attached with anything. The freedom that nothing should disturb truth. That's the freedom. The freedom is that you're not encumbered. You're never a victim to anything. It's pretty heavy stuff, this. Huh? Once somebody told me... That has the Reich from Reich, huh? Once a very spiritual person told me uh, that every person in life is the experience God wants to have. And, uh, and as a result, everything you do is by definition is God. Every person's life is the experience that God wants to have. So you look at your life and it's basically you wake up in the morning and you say, God, let's enjoy this experience together. It's basically you're a piece of Hashem, so to speak, and, and your life is the experience He wants to have, which is a very powerful and beautiful idea. Because it demonstrates the unity. No it's very, it's very it's common. People who become about tshuva, they say, "I wish you know." Right. I wish I would have grown up this way. Yeah. Yes. Uh, teacher taught us the cornices. God wanted it this way. <laughs> you didn't go to yeshiva. Yeah. Yeah. It was planned, and you have a contribution to give the Jewish world as a tshuva. Which, one of the mistakes, I think, that many in the religious community make is, consciously or unconsciously, they try to make the Bali Tshuva feel that they have to fit in. And it puts a lot of sociological pressure on Bali Tshuva and and their families. And sometimes they become unnatural. When they started their path of Tshuva, they were creative. 
They were idealistic. Their whole path to tshuva was one of rebellion. There was so much energy there. And then they come to a society which all they want is you should conform. Your children should conform. You should conform. You, you lose your individuality. And really, the reason God planted you in the home where he planted you is that you should bring your flavor into the Jewish world of Torah. Instead, you're just surrendering your whole background, which is the exact opposite of what your whole, your whole purpose is. That's a sad mistake that has happened in many people's lives. And it's not the Balshuva's fault. Because all he wants is his kids should fit into the schools and, and they speak about Shaduchim and you're going to have to marry them off and nobody's going to marry you. And this, in my mind, is a crime. That's even non Balichuva. It's not even, it's, that's true. Yeah. But non Balichuva, at least, were never idealistic. <laughs> well, not everybody. Some are very idealistic, but I mean, non Balichuva, it's, they have, a, they have such a big support system. The Balichuva doesn't have a support system. So who becomes support system? The rabbi, the rabbits, and the balabatim. So that's why there's so much dependency and vulnerability. And they're, and they're exactly, and his parents, his mother says you're crazy, and his father says you're crazy, and your brother says you're meshuga, and you could have had a normal life. So he becomes so dependent on the religious people, and often unconsciously they manipulate that position, and use it to repress, to repress the baltruva. And that's not a good thing. And I think one of the biggest... And the Bali have to be empowered to know that. Uh, it's one of, one, one of the biggest things, when, uh, you know, hardest realization was when he came from Russia. Everybody tells him, oh, for 70 years, you were behind the Iron Curtain. There was no God, there was no Torah. I said, God, can't you understand that you cannot put Ribbon Shalom behind the Iron Curtain? There was one some chastaira, some chastaira by a fabrengan of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he started to speak. And at some point, he just couldn't control himself, and he broke down, sobbing, but not stop. He was sobbing like a, like a baby. I couldn't. He couldn't. Uh, it started off, you know, a conversation, like a story. He's, it was the middle of a conversation, middle of a, a talk, and he said that he got a letter from a boy in Russia, a bocher, a teenager sent him a letter. And what's the content of the letter? The boy is struggling. And he wants the Rebbe's advice. The Rebbe said this publicly. In the middle of davening, he has machshavah zaris. In the middle of davening, he has machshavah zaris. At this point, the Rebbe just broke down. He said, Jews in America, they also write him letters. This one doesn't like the couch in his house. This one doesn't like the tiles in his bathroom. This one doesn't like that he doesn't make this money, that money. He says, and here is a boy, his physical circumstances are dire. He learns and he knows that any day he can be punished. His father can lose his job, his mother can lose her job, they can be sent to Siberia. It's a danger to send a letter here, he says. It's dangerous. He finally sends a letter. You would think in the letter he would say, get me out of this place. Or destroy this country. He says, what is he asking? That he shouldn't have machshav v'zoriz by davening. 
He says, that's what, that's what sits in his head. His biggest challenge in life is that by davening, he's not fully present. And then the Rebbe said these words. He says, the Welt steht auf Azabacher. The world is standing because of such a boy. Aber Evold Kemal, Evold Kemal nicht gewusst, Evold Kemal nicht gewusst, as the Welt steht auf him. He would never imagine. Because in his mind, he's just struggling with his davening. Uh, it was beyond moving. He was describing the boy and the circumstances and what they go through, the Russian Jews. And he was contrasting it. It was just very, uh, stop. So this is what you're, uh, what you're saying. So the boy should have asked for an easier life. He should have asked for a ticket, for a visa out of there. That would have been normal. Says what's licked in them? What's what? What's in this etzem hanefesh that he can't daven? The Rebbe was so moved by it. He was like, he was like, what a Jew is, what a Jew is. That that's really, that's the most important thing to him. Nothing else. <clears throat> Says he got a letter outside. He got a letter to me. Could have asked for a lot of things. Okay, I guess we don't have pchira to start learning Gemara. <laughs> You don't have a choice, you have to start. Okay. It's a Inyan. it's a Geshmaka Inyan. It's not, uh, this is deep, uh, deep stuff. Rabbi, I, I told my wife to tell her the Nagin, I'm a Nagin. Uh, she, she felt it. She said she needs to hear it. The Menagin has to become the Nigan. Totally feel totally understood it in one second. Yeah. Because my wife's very musical. Yeah. Wow. It's one of the most, it's one of the most powerful ideas. As long as you are a singer singing the song, you will never sing the song. Only when you become the song will you be able to be a channel for the music. Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Nami Shomer, got it from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. He wrote a poem called Siyon Halois Sishali Lishloim Asirayach. We say it on Tisha B'Av. And there he says, Ani Kinor Lishirayach. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. That's 11th century Spain. I am a harp for your melodies. So that's, that's the Ani became a Kinor. There you go. Yeah. So I'm so glad you told I am, me. I am the violin. I am the harp. I am the harp. There's no I playing the music. I am the harp through which Yerushalayim's songs play. That's amazing art instrument for his experience. Yeah, you become an instrument. Yeah, God is basically playing the music through you. That's the essence. This is the essence of of Avodah Hashem, according to, to from the from the perspective of the Baal Shem Tev, where the eye becomes a kiner l'shirayich. Here we have one of the great singers in the Jewish world. So next time you get up to sing... So next time you get up to sing, he sings sometimes every night. You get up to sing. It's not easy, but as long as you, you're experiencing yourself, it's probably, uh, compromising the power of it. I know in my, in my work, it's, 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 it's a given. It's not even a question. If I'm aware that I'm speaking, it's a much more limited form of communication. I don't always have the choice because I'm aware that I'm speaking. <laughs> I get up. I planned it. I thought about it. I have notes or my notes in my mind. Of course, I'm aware that I'm speaking. But as long as I'm aware, 
it's it's nice, it's great, it's wonderful. People will like it, but it's it's filtered and it's limited. Sports, they call That's, it in being in the zone. Right? Being in the zone. Like, being in the zone. Yeah. Pearl hit 15 three pointers yeah. in a row. It's just yeah, and he didn't even know he didn't even know how it happened, when it happened. He may barely have a recollection of it. Because actually it's kenagin hamenagin. You're in the zone and you're not there anymore. Your eye becomes one with the music or with the words or with the energy. And then God works through you. That's what real art is. of Yadashem. It's an unbelievable insight of the Magid. It was so powerful that Shleima Maimon, who hated Chsidim and religious Jews Bechlal, and he was a skeptic, a philo- real cold, heretical philosopher, says that he has to admit that this is a life-changing insight. He himself conceded it. He brings another insight from the Magad that also, he says, is unbelievable. Very interesting. And he says he heard this from Talmudim, who heard it from the Magad. So it's like real, direct evidence. And it's not in our writings. It's like the tradition came through Zdoim, you know, Matsasi David Avdi. It's a, it didn't come, it's like Shikha. It didn't come through the regular channels of Chsidus. It says in Pirkeyavus, Yihichvoid Chaver Chachavevalecha Keshalach. The covet of your friend should be as precious as your own. So the Maggit said, Pirkeyavus doesn't believe that you should be care about your own covet. It says, Kina, Taiva, Kavet, take you away from the world. And here he's saying, no. Your covet is precious, and your friend's covet should be as precious as yours. So he says, we mistranslate the Mishnah. means the covet that other people give you should be as valuable as the covet you give yourself. <laughs> Imagine doing a standing ovation for yourself. How, how valuable will that be? Imagine I finish a lecture, I go home, nobody applauded, so I go like this for 10 minutes. It's a joke, right? In front of a mirror. In front of a mirror. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's going to make me, it's, it's meaningless. So the Magad says, the cover that other people give you should be as, <laughs> as meaningful or as meaningless as that covet. Because <laughs> it is. Because <laughs> it is. Not bad, huh? Some good stuff. In other words, when you're in the zone, the cover that people give you is Of course, it's nice. It's nice that people give cover. It's, it's certainly, uh, but it means you're not in the zone. You're in the you're in the ego place. Yeah, in the ego place. You give me a compliment. I'm good. You're not. I'm upset. When you're in a real place, when you're the niggin, you know, you don't need a compliment. It's of course, compliments are nice. We all know that. Uh, they're, they're much nicer than criticism. <laughs> it's, it's more pleasant than criticism. But it's not, it's not the real thing. Compliment doesn't make you. It doesn't make it valid. You know what I mean? But sometimes the worst part is the contemporary way of the Sometimes. That's fine. Listen, you're eating at somebody's house. You thank the hostess for a delicious meal. I think that's very appropriate. <laughs> it's also saying thank you. Feedback, I think it's different than feedback. I am obligated to give feedback. But the person who, who, who presented, if he needs that feedback in terms of compliments, he's in a different place. There's also feedback, which is educational, and feedback just to validate and caress me. 
If you give me feedback about a shear, how effective it was, how transformative it was, or what it was missing, that's educational. That's feedback that I could learn from next time. In that sense, compliments are important, or criticism is important. We're not talking about that. You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about the covet I get just to feel good about myself, not to get feedback. So he says, that should be as precious as your own covet. That's what it is, basically. The pleasure of being in the zone is much deeper, and the ultimate pleasure is when you don't feel it. The feeling of the pleasure is already a detachment. You understand? The real pleasure you don't feel. There's an expression the Balatanya has, Tainug atzmi habilti morgish. The ultimate pleasure you will never feel. If you feel it, it's not that. That's what he says. Tainug atzmi habilti morgish. The deepest pleasure you will not feel. Habilti morgash. Regish. That's his expression. Tainug atzmi habilti morgish. It's deeper. It's in the essence. So you're not going to consciously feel it. Because the I is not process, pleasure is processing. Right? That means there's an I processing the experience. When I'm one with the experience, kinagin hamenagin, there's no, uh, there's no experience. <laughs> but there's pleasure, but it's a different type of pleasure. It's like oneness. It's deep stuff. This is deep stuff. These people went to deep places. And they brought it all back. This wasn't LSD trips. They brought it all back. Okay, I think enough for one day, no? Huh? Back to Bechira. If you sit here, you're going to stay, you're going to get stuck here. So, so. <laughs> it's too late. You're already stuck. And it's okay. says we just learned the whole sugi of Tehillim and Halal, so... That was David HaMelech's Tehillim. Kenagen HaMenagen. Ludavid Mizmer, right? Either it started with Ludavid and then it became a Mizmer. He was already in the zone. Or he wasn't in the zone and he had to sing in order to go into the zone. That's what the Gemara is saying. When it says Ludavid Mizmer, it means he was in the zone so he could sing. When it says Mizmer Ludavid, he sang in order to go into the zone. So it's Mamesha clear Gemara. So you could call your wife, also teach her the Gemara, not only the does. That's why singing is a very important part of spiritual life. There was a yeshiva bach, he told me about a yeshiva where he grew up in. Uh, I was Shabbos with a particular Rav. So he told me that he was in, uh, in a yeshiva he grew up in. He said over there the shitta was that you never sing. Shabbos, never, you never sing. He says it was a shitta. Shabbos, davening, you mummished it. No, you do zmir. Uh, over there, there's no zmiris. You said it, but by davening, yeshiva, the shitta was that it was a compromise of, um, of the greatness of man. And I felt a little bad. <laughs> Understand? In other words, the greatness of human is that you're an intellectual and you never, you know, you're not this lovey dovey emotional basket case. But it's it's a very limited type of greatness. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not realizing that your great your greatness is when you lose your greatness. Your greatness is when you lose your greatness, not when you hold on to it. <laughs> but for this, you have to um, yeah, you have to thank Hashem for the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. <laughs>
שלנו. אה? So on Shabbos, any animal that goes with a, with a collar, you're allowed to take out into the street. And in Shachin, you're allowed to pull, pull it with a collar because it's, it's like part of the lavush. It's like part of, like we go out to the street with garments. It's part of the garment of the animal. But Sher also means a song. So he said, Kol Bali Hasher, all the masters of song, Neshamas, Malachim, Yoitzin Besher, when they want to go out from themselves, they, it's always through music, Venim Shachin Besher. And when they want to transport themselves from one place to another place, it's through Sher. The Herst, Kolbali Hashir, Yoitzim Bashir, Venim Shachim Bashir. of the Balatanya, after he published the Tanya, came to him and they said, they learned Tanya and they don't understand it. So he said, because you only have the first half, you don't have the second half. He said, what's the second half? He said, Negina, music. You don't have the second half. So that's when he instituted Negin as part of uh, their lives. Negunim. He says, you only have the first half, you don't have the second half. So a Negin is really, it's like a part of the puzzle. Okay. It's a Zel Bezach. It's a Zel Bezach. It's not separate. <laughs> It's a machzadik one simchas Torah drank a lot, a lot of wine, yeah, and he went like this. <laughs> he went like this, and there was uh, he learned chayshem mishpat. <laughs> Just go like this. Simchas Torah, nineteen sixty-one. The Lubavitcher Rebbe drank bottles. Russian Jews, they gave him, he drank and drank, and you saw it, he was middle, he went like this, and he started to give a shir, a whole sikhin, a pilpul and chatsi shir, a deep sugi and nigla and halach of a chatsi shir. Long, intricate, detailed. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a psa-human thing, it was... We're going to learn about that. We're going to learn about singing Torah. The music of Torah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.